Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Boiling Frog, where we explore the connections among economics, politics, history, psychology, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. Seth, since this is our very first podcast, I thought we should probably take a minute to introduce ourselves. Given that our inaugural podcast is about market capitalism, let's start by owning up to being two unabashedly capitalist pigs, <laughs> shall we? Who, as a result of doing well in the private sector, had the opportunity to give back to our community by running for and serving on our local school board. Then you, being a glutton for punishment, then went on and got yourself elected to our city council. Yeah, well, I guess I must have some kind of self-destructive streak buried somewhere. <laughs> so if you'd like to learn more about us or subscribe to new podcasts or see materials that accompany these podcasts, please visit our website at theboilingfrog.net. Seth, I think market capitalism is a great first topic because it's so central to our community life. Not to mention many future podcasts are going to build on and extend what we talk about here. And it's also something we're all at least somewhat familiar with since we live and breathe capitalism every day, buying stuff and working at our jobs. Yes, but how much do we actually know? Let's take a deeper dive and see where it takes us. And before we do, I do want to throw out a bit of a disclaimer because this is not meant to be an economics class. So we'll gloss over a lot of details that economists will consider important. So rather think of this as just an overview of the key principles in understanding capitalism. Let's start with the basics. Seth, you're the one who actually studied economics in college, so why don't you take the lead on educating us? Think of capitalism as a continuum with different variants based on how the issues we're going to discuss get applied. And like any economic system, it's a way to allocate scarce resources among people most efficiently. Nothing more and nothing less. It enables individuals acting through self-interest to do more collectively than they can as individuals, and as such is affected by all sorts of phenomena of social psychology, many of which we'll discuss. I think I get that. But what specific principles is it based on? Does it assume any preconditions in order to work? Actually, there are just a few core principles it assumes are operating in the society within which it functions. First, capitalism requires competition. I think people understand that because competition enables and promotes efficiency and innovation. Also, capitalism requires the concept of private ownership, which resonates with humans sort of being these self-centered animals. And capitalism really serves in some way to harness self-interest to create community benefits. I didn't realize that's all it requires, particularly since, so far as I can remember, it's the best wealth generating system we've yet tried. I would have thought it would be a lot more complicated. Well, it is a bit. I mean, it has its problems. And we'll talk about those as we explore what I think of as the three pillars of capitalism. Wow, I can see the copyright symbol on that from all the way over here. So if it's based on three key principles, what are those? Capitalism is based on economic transactions meeting these three preconditions. The first is that choices involved are all made rationally and objectively. The second is that all costs and benefits in that transaction are measurable when the decision is made. And the third is that these transactions are frictionless. That seems straightforward enough, but to be brutally frank, I don't think any of those principles are generally met, if at all, in practice. So what lets capitalism work so well, despite it assuming a world which doesn't actually exist? Because real-world transactions often come close enough to meeting the preconditions for capitalism to function. And let's contrast that with something where, let's say, a central authority controls the means and levels production of all goods and essentially has to guess at the right levels of those. Hang on a second, though. It sounds like capitalism, too, would fail when its assumptions are not sufficiently well met. Is that correct? Of course, absolutely. And we'll talk about why and how that happens as we discuss each of the pillars. I enjoyed my economics courses, but I have to say they were a long time ago, longer ago than I like to remember. 
So let's start with something easy. I've got just the one. Market capitalists must be rational and objective when they make economic choices. Always a good thing to aspire to. Besides, we've modestly dubbed our species Homo sapiens, which I think means wise man, so we at least have to try and live up to our billing. But what makes an economic transaction by an individual rational? Well, it has to meet several conditions. First, it reflects self-interest. The buyer has to get at least as much from making the purchase than he or she gives up by paying the price. Secondly, the choice is the best choice they can make among the alternative options. Third is that risks associated with alternative choices are evaluated rationally. And lastly, all the costs and benefits are evaluated objectively. It makes sense to me that we ought to evaluate economic choices that way. But why is it important for an economic transaction to be rational? Well, because think of it this way, market capitalism would only work when all resources, and by resources I mean people, money, information, are allocated most effectively, and that can't happen if choices are made irrationally. Ah, so rational decisions allocate resources effectively while irrational ones don't. Yeah, that's right. But also remember that in the real world, many decisions we make are not rational. For example, we don't evaluate risk very well. I know we're going to have a future podcast just on risk because it's such a big topic. I can see that. Big dramatic catastrophes tend to weigh more heavily on us than slowly growing problems. That leads us to irrationally minimize or ignore the impacts of the slow stuff, just like you could supposedly boil a frog to death if you do it slowly enough. <laughs> you know, another uh, example is that we're able to buy insurance against the unknown, and buying insurance often irrationally fosters risk-taking because it lets us ignore or minimize consequences. And by the way, economists have a name for that. They call it moral hazard. But there are also many other ways we humans don't act rationally, which has all sorts of implications for our communities. In impacts we can't easily see get irrationally minimized or ignored, such as the negative health consequences of cigarette smoking, let's say. That's a classic example of out of sight, out of mind. We discount risks and costs that may be hidden or happen in the future. Another one is we tend to irrationally prefer alternatives which align with things we already believe in whether our beliefs are objectively correct or not. You know, psychologists call this confirmation bias. I'm sure you've heard of that. Yes, I have. Uh, we do tend to prefer to rationalize irrational situations away rather than admit we might have made a mistake. Which is related to another psychological term, the desire to avoid cognitive dissonance. And there's also a problem when we don't trust someone else, like lack of trust and or the inability to communicate objectively with other parties to a transaction limits the information we have for making rational choices. That's known as the prisoner's dilemma. So we'll have a whole other podcast on that topic, too. All right. I think I've got it. Capitalism assumes economic decisions are made rationally and objectively. What's the next pillar? Notwithstanding the issues we just talked about, if you're going to make a rational decision, you need to be able to measure the costs and benefits of that decision. That's the next pillar, and it's a very important one. I can see that. Rational, objective decisions can't be made if the things you're weighing against each other can't be measured. But unfortunately, there are many things in our lives that can't be measured, I mean, or at least not easily. I get that. Like the ability of a community to defend itself through military and police forces. That clearly benefits each and every member of a community, but the value is pretty hard to determine. And economists call these types of things public goods. They're a product or a service where the value is so dispersed across the community that it is impossible or cost prohibitive to measure the value provided to each person or extremely difficult to collect the payment for such value, even if you could measure it. Drawing on our mutual school board experience, education has got to be another example of that. It's hard to assess the value to you of educating someone else. 
even though we know there's clearly value to everyone from having an educated community. What's another example of where good information is important but hard to measure? There are these things called externalities that kind of fit the bill. They're an effect on an individual or another economic entity who is not party to a transaction. Because they're not present when the decision is made, we tend to ignore measuring the things that affect them. Like when people build a factory which pollutes other people's air. And it's why I think we have rules about how high you can build your house on your own private property because it might block someone's view. Those are great examples of externalities, and they're critical and unappreciated aspects of economic life. And they'll figure prominently in many of our future podcasts. It seems like the fact costs and benefits often occur at different times would be another kind of measurement problem. The disconnect complicates or inhibits our ability to weigh them against each other accurately. Absolutely. The future is inherently more difficult to assess due to uncertainty. You mentioned the third pillar had to do with market capitalism, assuming the world was frictionless. What did you mean by that? It relates to how resources can and must move within a capitalist economy. All resources are presumed to be able to be redeployed so as to maximize efficiency anywhere, at any time, at zero cost, <laughs> and right away. <laughs> Hang on, Seth. Those conditions are almost never met in the real world. Right, right. So let's discuss the implications of that disconnect. And in some way, being frictionless is, you know, the biggest issue of all the ones that we've discussed. And to do that, I think it'll be easier on our listeners if we categorize resources into three types and discuss each one separately with respect to friction. And the first is, you know, money, money, cash, capital. The second is information. And the third is people or the labor force. Well, I have to say, I like my money to have friction because that way it tends to stay in my pocket a little bit longer. Well, Mark, it's nice to hold on to it, but it doesn't do anything for you if you keep it idle. Uh, no, wait a second. What do you mean? Well, you can't eat your money. You can't eat gold. Money only has value if you could use it to buy something, you know, like food, therefore enabling economic activity. Ah, so money that doesn't move, that suffers from friction, isn't valuable. The easier and faster money moves, the more money it can create. And since capitalism strives to allocate resources efficiently, it depends on money being frictionless. In fact, the faster money moves, the higher what economists call its velocity, the more effective it is at creating wealth. You pay someone for a certain good, then they use the money to pay something else, etc., etc., or it gets loaned to someone else. And you can see counterexamples of this around the world. One was when I visited Cuba, right? The Cuban economy grows far more slowly than it can because in addition to the inefficiency of the government determining the level of production for many goods, loans are very difficult to secure. So money has this friction. I suspect it's also why things like credit cards and Venmo were so avidly embraced once they were invented. The easier it is to pay someone to move your money to them, the more transactions you got to be willing and able to do. Sure, and credit cards and Venmo are much more convenient, right, than carrying your checkbook around or always <laughs> having to go to the bank for cash, which we used to do. Yeah, I remember. I was just reading about how speeding up money played an important role in the colonies recovering from the American Revolution. Alexander Hamilton, the first Treasury Secretary, had a great idea for the federal government to take over all of the individual state debt. That let money flow more easily and quickly, which in turn sparked economic growth, which in then generated the taxes that were used to pay off the debt that had been assumed. Yeah, that's a great example of how economics is not a zero-sum game. And while capitalism depends on money moving without friction, it also requires that information does so as well. Remember, economic decisions must be based on good, reliable information to be rational. And that can't happen if the information flow gets clogged up somehow. 
Yeah, exactly. Rational economic decisions can only be made if we all have the information about the costs and benefits of a decision when we make it. Information effectively moving frictionlessly is critical. But again, that generally just doesn't happen in the real world. Gathering information always involves friction. In fact, I seem to recall it's a law of physics. Collecting information is mathematically the opposite of entropy, unless you happen to have something like Maxwell's demons sitting around in your pocket. Okay, you'll have to explain that one to me in another podcast, but you're right in practice. Information is not free and equally available to everyone. It's also another area where, frankly, technology can significantly improve the economy. I think we're living through that right now. Information is more readily and cheaply available today than it ever has been before. I like to say we're the first generation of humans who can instantly know something about literally anything, at least as long as we have Internet access. But despite that, information is still not universally frictionless, at least not in practice. Think about the mundane act of buying a can of soup, right? Without labeling about what it is, its nutrition, you'd have no idea what's in the can or how good it is for you, you know? So how could you decide if you wanted to buy it? You'd also have no idea if it was manufactured safely either. And even if it claimed to be, you couldn't know if the information on the label was, in fact, accurate. So we need some system to enforce quality standards on the information we use to make economic decisions. And market capitalism wouldn't necessarily provide that on its own. And now let's talk about the last economic resource, which has to be able to move frictionlessly for market capitalism to function. It's not necessarily obvious, but we've been hinting at it a little bit in our discussions up to this point. And I'm referring to us, the people. Capitalism seeks to deploy every individual, you, me, everyone else, to where he or she can be most effective in any given time. I'm not sure I like the sound of that. Why should I be forced to move just so market capitalism can function properly? Yeah, I understand the concern on a personal level, of course, but ironically, it's probably the most important resource that needs to move frictionlessly because so much economic activity depends on labor. But as you just hinted at, frictionless labor inherently conflicts with how most people want to live their lives. This requirement seems the most bizarre one to me of the ones we've talked about. After all, participating in the economy is not the only thing people do with their lives. I'm correct. I mean, we seek pastimes and have ties to other people, places and things. Plus, unlike money and information, moving people requires physical movement, which is inherently costlier. While it's true some people, at least some of the time, seem to live to work, the vast majority of people, I think, work to live. They work mostly to be able to acquire those other non-economic things so they can enjoy life. But even in the narrow context of work, we all have ties to particular industries or specialties or skills, etc. And these are not always easy or quick to change. In the real world, human resources do not move without friction. I mean, that said, there's been some decrease in labor friction over the last few decades. We see that in the increased acceptance of greater career mobility and the acceptance of gig work and remote work, for example. But that's still a drop in the bucket relative to the entire amount of friction in the labor market, making people the economic resource most constrained by friction. I'd have to say that's a limitation most of us would generally see as desirable, not something that we want to see fixed. And it's also why what's called structural unemployment exists. When an industry or a skill set is not needed as much, it's pretty difficult without intervention to immediately redeploy those people into new fields with new skills. Think of someone who's been a coal miner for decades. I think we've explained why market capitalism depends on resources being able to move without friction. But let's summarize where the requirements of market capitalism tend to break down in the real world for our listeners. First and foremost, none of the essential resources allocated by capitalism are frictionless. People are simply the resource where the disconnect is the largest and the most noticeable. 
It's also worth remembering the community seeks to manage or mitigate many of the sources of friction we talked about through government action. Like by enacting product disclosure laws, that nutritional label on the can of soup we talked about, or product liability laws, which seek to hold economic players accountable for what they build or the services they perform. And even in the realm of what you might call pure information, we also impose all sorts of financial disclosure requirements on companies. There's also education, training, retraining and income support, government insurance of people's bank deposits, the list goes on. I have to keep coming back, though, Seth, to something that strikes me as really interesting in this conversation. It sure seems to me that none of capitalism's pillars are particularly well met in the real world. Correct. Decisions are not always or even often made rationally. Costs and benefits are often not fully measurable and known when choices are made, and resources do not move without friction. There's also the fact that trying to meet those requirements, particularly in the case of labor moving frictionlessly, has the potential to disrupt people's lives. However much we might enjoy the benefits of capitalism, it comes with some pretty significant requirements, which aren't always obvious to the people relying on the system, I think. That's right. Capitalism is focused solely on maximizing the efficiency of how resources are used. Because of that singular focus, there are a number of aspects of the economy which it doesn't handle very well. What's an example of that? One is what economists call natural monopolies. This is the case where it's actually most efficient not to have competition. I know that seems odd, but think of an example where a telephone or a power company, right? No one wants 50 companies stringing wires you know, on poles in their neighborhood. It'd be a terrible waste of resources, and the redundant costs would be greater than the potential savings from more competition. But history documents plenty of other kinds of monopolies not based on what you're calling natural conditions. What about them? I mean, monopolies, however they occur, undermine capitalism, in part because they limit or eliminate competition. That can occur either because they're natural monopolies, like I just mentioned, or because just companies buy out competing companies, or one company becomes dominant just by virtue of great success. Yeah, or by people or companies, quote unquote, buying enough political power to forbid or prevent competition. As the old saying goes, it's always good to have friends in high places. Yeah, and there's another type of monopoly that we do intentionally. We allow what we'll call a temporary monopoly, and that's a form of patent protection or any type of intellectual property protection. We do that to encourage innovation. But however they occur, for capitalism to function well, monopolies must be constrained in one way or the other. And capitalism doesn't really do that on its own. Speaking of things market capitalism doesn't do well on its own, what about significant disparities in personal wealth and income? That's a topic that's recently garnered an awful lot of attention and concern. Capitalism really doesn't pay attention to that. It doesn't really care how the wealth it generates gets distributed among the players. I mean, that's important because remember, wealth is created by economic activity. I can imagine a world where almost all the wealth is in the hands of a small number of ferociously competing individuals or companies. That would be market capitalism operating as it should, but I kind of doubt most people would enjoy living there. Left to itself, capitalism does tend to foster uneven wealth distribution, and that's because it's not a level playing field. We're all born at different starting points on this racetrack. I find these things ignored by or outside the scope of market capitalism kind of disturbing, particularly because concentrated economic power can be converted into political power, and history is full of examples of how that can end badly. Yes, and also because there are things outside the economic environment that have value. Almost no one thinks all there is to a good life is acquiring wealth. People have other priorities and concerns that exist completely outside the economic sphere. Like creating these podcasts. <laughs> for example. <laughs> but let me back up for a second, Mark, because for all of its problems, market capitalism still clearly outperforms, at least in terms of overall wealth creation and technological advancement, etc., everything else we've tried. 
I can see that, and I agree with that. But I kind of think, like fire, while it's a powerful servant, it's a terrible master. So what keeps it from doing more harm than good? Well, that was a setup line if there ever was one. <laughs> we use community-based tools to offset or mitigate the shortcomings of capitalism because for it to function well, we need to prop up its pillars and address the areas where it fails. Sounds like you're saying capitalism can't do what we ultimately want it to do, provide a better life for people by itself. It requires an external community-based force to realize its potential. And that is the very definition of government. Capitalism needs some degree of government management to function well in the real world. I mean, it needs, for example, laws to define and constrain desired behavior for all parties to a transaction. It needs rules to require participants in a transaction to include downstream effects that they otherwise might ignore. Not to mention rules requiring transparency to ensure necessary accurate information is readily available, as well as rules encouraging or requiring that all relevant parties get a seat at the table. And it needs a justice system to encourage compliance with the rules, to help victims of unfair transactions get compensated. You know, so everyone will really continue to support the whole system. By creating a reasonably stable environment, government reduces risk and uncertainty, which also directly supports capitalism. Now, keep in mind, though, that despite the fact that government is needed, we must recognize that government actions do add friction to the system. So we must strike the right balance between reducing friction through rules and the friction the rules themselves create. What are some examples of frictions that government rules add? Well, think of it this way. Everything costs money, including public services and benefits, you know, even law enforcement. That all costs money. To do that, we need taxes. But taxes introduce friction because they potentially lead to less efficient economic decisions. Like think about how sales taxes directly distort the pricing decisions on which people base their purchases. But if regulations introduce friction, undermining capitalism, how can they ever be net positives for the community? Well, remember those externalities and public goods we discussed? Rules that get those externalities and public goods considered by the marketplace actually make capitalism more effective and efficient. Clean air regulations are a great example. No one owns the air, but everyone benefits from having it clean. Another example, I think, is what our local school board did. We sought voter approval of property taxes, which clearly create economic friction in the housing market, to better fund the public good called education. And by doing so, we hope that the benefit we gave to everybody from having an educated community was a lot greater than the tax that we imposed on them. Yeah, exactly. And another example are job training programs and assistance for people displaced by economic changes. They help reduce friction in the labor market, which, as we discussed, is where friction is the highest to begin with. So, bottom line, Smart regulations make capitalism work better, despite the added costs or constraints they impose. Hey, you know, I think we've managed to disprove one of Ronald Reagan's favorite assertions. Government really can help us, even in the strictly economic sense. Although we must recognize that government alters the free market environment, government should alter it in a way so that market capitalism can actually function better. Dedicated capitalists like us should love the involvement of the government. Now, of course, no one's perfect, and some government choices aren't as good as they should be. But that's not an argument against government involvement per se in capitalism, as our laissez-faire friends would have us believe should be the goal. It's an argument to always stay focused on making smart public decisions and being ready, willing, and able to fix mistakes. Unfortunately, a lot of political rhetoric these days frames the issue as capitalism versus government, when it's really a codependent relationship. And here I thought codependency was always a bad thing. <laughs> well, to keep capitalism working well, meaning doing a better job at effectively allocating resources, government is key. Because left to itself, market capitalism would become a terrible master rather than be a powerful tool. 
So how can people apply what we've talked about today to make things better? First of all, they can leverage the improved understanding we hope they've gained, because unfortunately, many people, including elected officials, have a very limited understanding of what makes capitalism work. People tend to apply market principles simplistically to every situation they encounter. In the case of electeds, I suspect that's because most haven't had the opportunity to see capitalism in action from the inside, like you and I did in our private sector careers. But even people who have seen it from the inside, I think, tend to think that things that work in the private sector, you know, like competition, should work in, say, the education environment as well. But that ignores the public good and natural monopoly aspects of education we talked about earlier. So we need to remember capitalism's preconditions are not automatically met in the real world. We all tend to ignore the nuances that we've been talking about today, which has the potential to allow market capitalism to wreak havoc on the society it is purportedly serving. We benefit from having elected leaders who keep the limitations of market capitalism in mind and who want to make smart government policies to optimize the promise of capitalism and who are not slaves to a naive view of its orthodoxy. Each of us can support this by choosing elected leaders committed to viewing market capitalism as a tool for meeting society's goals, not just an end in its own right. But let's be clear, we are both avowed capitalist pigs. We just want capitalism to work as well as it can, given its inherent limitations. And ensure the things it isn't designed to address aren't ignored. Things like highly unbalanced wealth distributions leading to excessive political power in the hands of the few, or just people's desire to get more out of life than just a paycheck. Well, thanks, Mark, for a great kickoff to our podcast series. And to our listeners, remember to check out theboilingfrog.net for more podcasts. The website also has additional resources related to what we talked about today, including essays that go into more detail on the principles we discussed. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Wishing you a productive and fulfilling life, in more than economic terms, of course. <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.